Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or memory or safety or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'll be speaking with Amy Berman, RN, who is a senior program officer with the John A. Hartford Foundation in New York City. And we are going to be talking about palliative care and living with cancer. Now, Amy has a really unique and wonderful perspective on this topic. As some of you may recall, the Hartford Foundation is dedicated to improving the health care of older adults. This is a topic that we covered in episode 19, which was about philanthropy and geriatrics. So as a longtime program officer with the foundation, Amy has long been really knowledgeable about innovations and best practices when it comes to the care of people with serious illnesses. But about five and a half years ago, Amy was herself diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And as you'll be hearing from her in just a moment, she took quite a proactive approach to her care and she was able to access palliative care expertise quite early on. I'm thrilled to say that she's done well overall. I'm really thrilled to have her join us here today to talk about palliative care and her experience with it and the many ways in which it has helped her live well despite having stage four cancer. Amy, welcome to the show. Good morning, Leslie. Thank you for having me. I really want to have you spend a little time telling your story to the audience. But before we go into that, I think it might help for us to start just by reviewing uh, what palliative care is, because I found that often people aren't quite familiar with the term. So how do you explain to people what is palliative care? Palliative care is the best friend of the seriously ill. It is a team that provides care in addition to the treatment that you get for your serious illness. And it focuses on the person instead of the disease. So the kinds of things that a palliative care physician, nurse, social worker, even chaplain, that they're going to do is to focus on managing how somebody is living with that serious illness. Um, managing the spiritual needs, care coordination, having conversations about what's important to that person about their own health, what they're trying to achieve, what they're trying to avoid. And then, of course, things like managing symptoms, making sure that people can feel as well as possible in the face of serious illness. Some people don't know what palliative care is and think that it means that it's giving up care or giving up in general. But palliative care means um, whether you are in a treatable mode where you're going to get better from the disease, it's how you manage that disease, whether you have chronic disease, and in my case, I have advanced cancer, but it still is chronic disease. I'm going to live with that disease for a while. Or at the end of life, palliative care is the major focus of care in just managing people to live as well as possible through the end of life. 
Right. Yeah, well, I think you put it uh, really beautifully. And just to recap a bit, it's really a, a, a discipline or a kind of healing specialty that focuses on the person and helping the person live as well and be as well, regardless of what's going on with their illnesses. And it might be a chronic illness, or it might be at a very late stage near the end of life. And you mentioned a couple key components, because I think sometimes people get a little confused about the different parts that there's a part of it that's about having these conversations with people to make sure that they um, have thought deeply about their illness, understand the possibilities, and have thought about what's most important to them to help think about how they might want their medical care to proceed. And then you mentioned symptoms. That's really important, helping people with difficult or painful symptoms, which I think, you know, can be physical, but sometimes are emotional distress or concern. And then uh, expertise in managing the very end of life. And, and that to do all of this, it works best with a team. And so palliative care is often provided by a team. And you mentioned some of the key members, which are a clinician and a social worker and often chaplains and other people involved. So, And you also mentioned that people think it's sometimes giving up care. And I think that's because people often confuse palliative care with hospice. So how do you explain the difference between palliative care and hospice to people? Great question. So hospice is a, is a specific benefit under Medicare that cares for people during the last six months of life or what we expect to be the last six months of life. And it gives a wraparound set of services. And palliative care is typically one of those things because there typically is a, you know, there are lots of symptoms that people are going through at that point in very serious illness. But hospice is at the end of life, and it's for very specific people at the end of life. Palliative care can be for people going through curative disease. It can be for people with chronic disease. So palliative care is at the point that you have serious illness, including a serious illness that you may get better from. Palliative mm -hmm. care helps you manage getting through that disease. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, that palliative care can be very helpful and is completely relevant, even if you have an illness that you may well get better from. That's really about helping people live better and go through that experience in a way that's more person-centered and addresses their symptoms and their needs. So, um, so now tell us a little bit more about your story. What, what happened with your diagnosis? And then how did palliative care get involved in your care? Well, about, it, it's now six years ago, just this month, it's six years ago. Oh, wow. I saw that I had a, a red spot on my right breast, and it was a funny-looking red spot. It looked kind of like the skin of an orange. And that little area looked very angry, and it's a sign of a certain kind of cancer. Now, I've never thought that I had something. There's some people in the healthcare profession who think that they have something, you know, they know right. so much that they think, and I've never thought that way. But when I saw this sign and I knew that it's a sign of a certain kind of cancer, I immediately went to the doctor and the doctor took one look and had the same look on her face as I had on my face. And she sent me to get a scan and to have a biopsy done. And they confirmed that it was, in fact, something called inflammatory breast cancer. Breast cancer in general, there's a fairly good prognosis, uh, likely course of the disease. About 90% live five years or more. 
And this particular one has the worst of all of the outcomes for breast cancer. So the the likely course of the disease is that 11 to 20% survive to five years. So it's, it's just very, very unlikely to live to five years. And as I said, you know, I'm at six years. And even though you're listening to a voice, what you don't see is that I am an active, vibrant person who um, took a trip to South Africa recently. And, oh, you know, I, I, I go and I do. I work full time. I have a great life you know, great time with my family. And all of this, you know, I would say is because I didn't throw curative care at incurable disease. Mm-hmm. So there were two very different doctors, one who wanted to do a mastectomy and radiation and chemotherapy, the most intense treatment that the body could take. And the other who said, you know, if if we if it is stage four cancer, which was confirmed later, um, if it is advanced cancer, terminal cancer, that maybe I should choose the treatments that help me hold on to what I have. Right. And so that's really the approach that I ended up taking since the cancer has spread to my lower spine. It made more sense for me to try to hold on to what I have to feel well than to, you know, do this, throw everything at the disease, I would have done that if it would have given me a benefit down the road. But if it's not going to give me a benefit down the road, it really will likely shorten my life and make me not feel well. And the other piece, as you suggested, is that, you know, palliative care has always been part of my care. So that means that my oncologist is focused on making sure that I have good pain and symptom management and that when my oncologist, my cancer doctor, can't manage this well, that there is then this team of experts, a palliative care team, which has stepped in um, at one point, uh, you know, to really help me get through a rough spot and brilliantly so. And I'm happy to tell you about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'd like to hear about that. Now, just briefly, so at the very beginning, as you were trying to figure out how to proceed, did you meet with a specialist in palliative care? And just to clarify for the audience, it is a medical specialty that people can do a fellowship in and become board certified in. And it's also a sort of a skill set, which some doctors who often uh, work with people who have life-threatening illnesses, including us in geriatrics, and I think now oncologists are increasingly getting some training in palliative care. So they're not board-certified specialists, but some of them may be more comfortable applying some of those skills. And so I was just wondering, did you, was it your, your oncologist or your primary care doctor who helped you start that process of thinking through your options and what's most important and should you consider a non-curative route? Or how, how did you find the, the provider to guide you through that process? Well, the first thing was finding the right oncologist, and then the right oncologist had a palliative care team. So it's really both of those things. Um, I I chose an oncologist uh, who was not a specialist in my rare form of cancer. The doctor who would have thrown everything at the disease and didn't seem to care much about me uh, was the 
the great specialist in this particular disease. But that person was not well connected to palliative care and really didn't seem to be thinking about how I was going to live my life. The, the other doctor was a more generic oncologist who had cared for people with my condition but was not a leading specialist in my rare cancer. And she had conversations with me about what I was hoping to accomplish with, with stage 4 cancer. So she started those conversations and she started managing my pain and symptoms because at the beginning I did have some pain and symptoms. But she quickly introduced me to the palliative care team that she works with. And at different points along the way, they've managed things that were over and above what a, what a well-trained oncologist might know about. So you need to have both. And I think a lot of people think that palliative care means you leave um, you know, your, your specialist. It doesn't. It is an extra layer of support that goes along with that care and treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think you're getting at, I mean, I think you're getting at a few things that are really important. I mean, one is that I think people often, when they have cancer, reflexively look for the top specialist in that specific condition. And those people are often very, very knowledgeable about the science and the latest treatments. And I think it's true that in a way they, um, I'm sure it's not true for all of them, but that some of them may sort of miss the forest for the trees, or they're so sort of focused on the tree of those cancer molecules that they may not be as likely to think about the whole person. So true. And that often someone who has a little bit, you know, can step back a little bit more, may be in a good position, which is why it's great that you actually got those two opinions, you know, and were able to, uh, to consider them also. And then I think also this idea of finding an oncologist who is comfortable discussing palliative care topics, and then who is preferably in a clinic where they have a a palliative care team there, or at least a relationship with one, so that they can refer or get extra support for their patients when it comes up. I think that's really, really important. And people don't necessarily think to look for that when they get a cancer diagnosis and they're thinking, where should I go for my cancer care? But but um, we've certainly had some research on it recently in the past several years about how often people with cancer who get treated at the same time by a palliative care team do better and don't die earlier. That's right. They, they live on average an extra three months. And if you were to think about medications, if they found a medication that helped you live three months longer with cancer, it would be considered a miracle drug. So palliative care does that. It helps you live better, longer. It does all of the right things and also helps people stay out of the hospital because you can speak to the team after hours and avoid unnecessary trips to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And um, now at that moment when you're sort of trying to decide, should you pursue the kind of what we might call, you know, aggressive route, mastectomy, chemotherapy? I mean, you said that only 10% of people are alive after f- five years, but many people really want to go for that little chance because they they think they'll be one of the lucky ones or because they, they really want to try. So was it hard to, to decide to not pursue that? It wasn't hard for me. You know, I I had read um, what the course of this disease was like, and I had read very clearly that there weren't cures for this particular disease, 
And so for me, it's really a matter of managing my life. You know, for the remainder of my life, it's really about managing that. Um, the way that I talked to my doctor about it is that I wanted what I call the Niagara Falls trajectory. I want to feel good, good, good and drop off the cliff. Right. You know, help me live more good days and, you know, try to compress the bad days. But it's really about, you know, starting feeling well and ending at the universal. We all end there. But I, I really would like that kind of Niagara Falls go out with many good days as possible. And that that other doctor who wanted to kind of throw everything at the disease, the Hail Mary pass, it, it, it really would have thrown me off the cliff. I would have felt really awful for quite a while and likely would have ended up in the hospital for more than just the mastectomy. I likely would have returned because of infection or other problems. My life would have been very different and it wouldn't change the end point. So for me, this was an easy decision. But I, I do have to say we have a certain bias that, you know, when you hear cancer, um, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to, you know, what can I throw at it? How can I get it out? You know, how soon can I get surgery? And if the cancer has spread far, and stage four means that it has spread far, it's from my breast to my spine, that really means that it floats all over my body. It just happens to be attracted to the spine, but it's floating in my bloodstream. And, you know, doing the mastectomy, doing all of those other things are not actually going to get rid of the cancer. So for me, it was easy to decide not to have a surgery or not to throw unnecessary care. And I am getting treatment. I mean, I, I think We've talked about this before. I do get treatment and I do try to hold the cancer back, but I choose treatments that have the least amount of side effects and symptoms, the things that try to keep me well and don't try to throw me over that cliff too soon. Right. One of the things that sometimes I talk about on the website and in the podcast is this idea of you know balancing the benefits and the burdens. And that it's something that one keeps having to do over again. And so for a treatment, I guess you can sort of think it is how likely it is that it's going to, to help and what are the likely side effects. And then you decide if it sounds like a good trade-off for you at that time. And it sounds like so far it's worked out really well. It's worked out really well. And I guess I just want to also say that it's, it's not about cancer. That palliative care, having these kinds of services to support you when you go through serious illness, it's also for things like um, breathing problems, congestive heart failure, or certain kinds of heart problems, or um, certain kinds of dementia, um, that it's for any kind of serious illness that causes, you know, pain, symptoms, um, and need for supports for the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I should add that there are, I think, increasingly more uh, centers, for instance, for um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and for some heart conditions that are integrating palliative care specialists into the clinic to provide some of those services along with the usual care to, to improve people's hearts and lungs. And I think that's just a wonderful trend that I hope will continue. Now, I'm thinking right now of somebody I know a relatively young woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer that had spread and had some complications 
someone I know socially, and she was having quite a lot of nausea and vomiting. And so I said, well, have you, have you asked for a palliative care consultation? And her husband told me that actually the insurance didn't want to pay for it. I was a little bit shocked, actually. It hadn't occurred to me that insurance coverage might be a barrier for people who don't have Medicare. I mean, some of it is that they're in the private insurance system. And I was just kind of curious, do you know if that's often an obstacle to people accessing these kinds of services? Uh, It is at times an obstacle. It hasn't been an obstacle uh, for a lot of people. There are um, a lot of insurers that are covering it. But sometimes it's not just a matter of the insurer not covering it. It's a matter of the service not being available where somebody is. So it's becoming increasingly available, but it is a challenge at times to get access to it. Right. And I know that you've actually been involved in advocating for better access. You've testified in Congress, right? That's right. Yeah, the Senate Special Committee on Aging Uh, They had a discussion around serious illness and, of course, palliative care and paying for palliative care, making sure that it's well integrated, that if you have serious illness, that it should be a basic benefit and available everywhere for anybody who needs it. That's, uh, you know, a basic recommendation. Well, I hope uh, that they took the recommendation seriously and, you know, that most importantly, they help ensure that the right financing mechanisms and regulations, you know, help encourage that because it is a really wonderful service and we want people to be able to access it. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had a few rough moments when the palliative care team really came through in helping you with your symptoms and with your illness. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. What happened? Well, it it, it might not be so different from what happened to your your friend um, socially. About a year and a half ago, I started to have pain right in the middle of my back. And because the cancer has spread to my bone, it sometimes can eat away at areas of the bone and can cause fractures. So I thought maybe I had a small fracture in my back. I went for an x-ray and it wasn't a fracture. So I had a scan done. And it showed that the cancer had progressed, that the cancer was now in a new area right in the middle of my back. And it really hurt a lot. I mean, it was it was pretty wearing. It wasn't the kind of pain that, you know, I couldn't move. It was just, it, it made life miserable. I mean, it kind of made everything unenjoyable. So I went to the palliative care team. And the palliative care team reviewed you know, where it was and what was going on. And I I told them I'm working and I want to make sure that I can continue working. Um, And uh, what was the best thing to do to help manage this pain? And they said that the thing that they do for a spread of cancer to new areas in the bone, when the bone is having pain, they do radiation. But Not the kind of radiation like they're getting rid of the cancer, but just enough to kind of turn off the pain. And there had been a study in Canada right before I went to my palliative care team, and my palliative care team had read about this study. About 16,000 people had this radiation therapy, and some of them had had one dose, a little larger dose, And the other people had the standard treatment, which was about 10 to 20 treatments. And the people who got 10 to 20 treatments, they had 
burning, their skin peeled, they had crushing fatigue, they, they sometimes felt nauseous or their appetite um, had challenges. And the people who had this one slightly larger dose, number one, they got immediate response, like the pain was shut off. They didn't have to wait for 10 to 20 treatments, but they also didn't have all of those bad side effects. So I went at the recommendation of my palliative care team, my best friends, I went and I told my radiation oncologist that I would like to have that one dose. It's called single fraction radiation therapy. And I did. I had the one dose. It basically turned off the pain. And the next day, I was on a train to Washington, D.C., going about my business doing work like nothing had ever happened. It was phenomenal. My skin wasn't even red. But the other thing the palliative care team did, uh, they said sometimes after you get that treatment that the pain flares one more time. And that flare can be you know, it can really hurt before the pain basically goes away. And so they gave me a prescription for a medication in case that pain flare happened. They told me what to do. Now, the pain flare never happened, but I had a plan. I wasn't going to end up in the emergency room. And they they really prepared me. So I had better care. Um, I got quicker relief. I had a plan in case something went wrong. You know, everything about it was the right kind of care. Mm-hmm. You kind of got the right care at the right time. It was a good fit for your health situation and your preferences. And you were a really active part of uh, the plan. So, I mean, in, in many ways, I think you're sort of describing what we want all healthcare, or at least, you know, 90 plus percent of healthcare to be for people. And right now, it's often not that people don't get that experience for a variety of reasons. But you've been, as I mentioned earlier, doing some advocacy work, speaking out about how important these conversations and this approach to your care has been for for your own experience. And about a year ago, Medicare announced that they would start paying for advanced care planning conversations. So I would love for us to talk a little bit about, you know, what it's going to take for this kind of experience that you've had to become more widely available and to really become the norm instead of this, you know, wonderful exception for us to all admire. For instance, this this Medicare payment for advanced care planning conversations, what's your sense of, of how, how well this is going to work? Do you expect that the average person will see a change in their serious illness experience over the next few years? I, I think that it is going to start to change, and I don't think that the the payment for advanced care planning is going to be the thing that makes that change happen. I think it it's, may take more than just the advanced care planning payment. So right now, they, there's a, a very modest amount of money um, to be able to have these conversations. Uh, my foundation did a survey of physicians, a nationally representative survey to ask physicians um, whether or not having these conversations are important. And 99% of physicians said that it was important that they themselves lead these conversations, have these conversations with their patients. Oh, wow. But but 46% said, I just have no idea what it is I'm supposed to do. Mm. So right now there's a real gap and it's a training gap. 
people don't necessarily know how to guide people through these conversations. Now, people who are palliative care providers or geriatricians, this is what they do. This is what they know. But many people are going to be going to a whole host of specialists when something is wrong. They're going to, you know, a cardiologist, an oncologist, some ologist somewhere. And that person may be very poorly prepared to have the conversation, even if it is reimbursed. So we, we certainly need to have better training around this. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll just add that for me as a geriatrician, you know, we actually had some very explicit training in, um, first of all, in palliative care. I had a two-month dedicated palliative care rotation um, during which time, you know, I not only participated in the palliative care consult service at the VA and the hospice service, we had a hospice at the nursing home there, but I also got very specific training and practice sessions on on um, addressing many of these topics, these challenging topics with patients and families. And and I think sometimes we don't, you know, we we might not realize that. We think that people are good at something just because they've done it a lot or because they were naturally drawn to those types of situations. But they're also just specific skill sets um, and practice sessions that one can do. And when you go through it, it already improves your abilities quite a lot. So I hope that training becomes more widely available and that doctors take advantage of it because it's wonderful that they feel they should do it. But I certainly understand the feeling of I don't know how to do it because I remember being a resident and, um, and having a patient who we had found had cancer. And it was like, how are we going to tell him? <laughs> and we, we just went and did it. But later I realized, gosh, we really should have you know, had a little help being talked through it. And this was a while back. I think even now they're doing a better job. There's more palliative care doctors in training hospitals who are coaching residents. And the sort of more you get it in early in medical school and in residency, I think the better. I'm sure that it's a scary thing from the clinician side to have the conversation. Certainly, I can tell you from from the side of a patient, it's a scary thing. But but it also is something that most people know. They, they know that they are experiencing a serious illness. And that lack of information is even scarier than having the information and being able to participate in decisions. So it's really, it, it's, it's almost a welcome relief for somebody to talk openly with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, another thing I think about is that these conversations are often referred to as, quote, end of life conversations. But sometimes I think that term leads people to think about their last days or hours. And so, you know, again, if they're thinking, well, I don't want to be at the very end or I'm not ready to give up or, or maybe they have one of those serious chronic illnesses that's not cancer that you mentioned earlier, like advanced heart disease or advanced lung disease, uh, where they'd still benefit from palliative care and the palliative care approach. Do you think we need a better way to describe and frame these conversations? Completely. You know, there's there's another great geriatrician who you may know, a woman named Mary Tanetti at Yale, and she used the term current care planning. So it's not just advanced care planning, you know, planning for planning for the end, planning for if your heart stops or if you're, you know, if your breathing is going downhill, but it's really kind of from the point of serious illness, what are the kinds of things that you value? And what are the things that you would want to avoid? And there are 
there are things about my care, I mean, I've already explained some of them, that I would want to avoid. Don't throw unnecessary treatment at me. Don't throw treatment. Don't do the Hail Mary pass because you're risking the quality of the time that I have left. And I'm not willing to compromise that. So, you know, having those conversations, it's bigger than just planning for the end of life. It's planning for that whole experience through serious illness and making the right kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in you know, as clinicians, we often use the term goals of care conversation. But at one point when I was writing an article for my site, you know, I like to give people links to where they can learn more about a given topic. And I realized that there's actually very little written for the public about goals of care. It's sort of a term that we're using, seemed to me, almost exclusively within our own community as professionals to uh, to talk to each other about it. But, but, you know, I think about that too. Is that another approach, the kind of, you know, values and goals of, of care? Um, and I guess, you know, maybe it's something that somebody will eventually get funded to study, you know, trying different versions of how we call this to see how people respond, because I think the words are actually really important or can be very powerful. I completely agree. And, you know, goals of care is a, is a medical term. But for people, what's important to you? What do you value? What would you want to avoid? How do you feel about these different treatment choices? You know, um, What's the life, what's most important to you in life that you're trying to do? So if you understand that somebody wants to be able to go to church on Sunday or that somebody's trying to, you know, be there for the, the birth of their grandchild, you know, um, it may mean delaying a surgery or it may mean, you know, things that are of value to a person in their life have to be first and foremost the consideration. Yeah. The what's important to you conversations. Yeah. Although I think that also gets at, you know, that gets at the idea that we as clinicians should should provide care in accordance with what's important to a person instead of with what we're most used to doing or what's most convenient. And I, I think that's a shift because I think although everybody in most, just about every doctor I know, if you ask them says, oh, of course I want to do you know, help people with what's important to them. I, I think many of them are also just used to kind of proceeding, right? Just like that specialist who is used to proceeding with the sort of maximum firepower to stamp out cancer cells. And um, so I think that gets at, you know, a certain cultural shift, which I think we're in the, the midst of, that there are many options often, and that deciding on those options should not mainly be up to us as clinicians, although we play a big role you know, in exercising our judgment and advising, but that it should be really driven by what, by patients understanding the options, being told about the options and weighing in and, and talking about what's important to them so we can help guide them towards the options that are a good fit for that. So there are so many um, clinicians that give information, but don't ask any questions. And it's very hard to get what we call person-centered care, to get care that is concordant with our values, our wishes, if nobody's asking us. It's actually, you know, it, it would just be by chance that, that they got it right. Right. And, and I think that there is a big trend going on now and will be increasingly so with the next generation. The, the boomers 
The boomers demand much more than the greatest generation demanded. Um, so I, I do see that as being the trend. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. So I guess just to kind of bring things to a close, given the way things are right now, which is, you know, trending towards more palliative care access and more person-centered care, but not quite there yet. At this time, what would you recommend to listeners or to other people who uh, find out they have cancer or maybe are having difficulty with another serious illness? If they would like to benefit from palliative care as you have, what would you recommend to them right now? There is a website that might be a good resource. Um, It's called getpalliativecare.org. And it is a way where you can enter your zip code and find out the contact information for the palliative care team that is in your area or if it's for a family member in their area. Uh, So if people want to reach out to palliative care and you can't find a way to do it through your doctor, you can go directly to that team and they then can loop back to your doctor so that they can become part of the care. Okay, so that's one great way. Anything else you'd suggest to people? I would just suggest that you you really be careful about making clear what is important to you. Um, make sure that you have an advanced directive. So pick somebody who you know to be able to make decisions when you're not able to make decisions for yourself. And make sure that they know what your values are. And definitely make sure to have palliative care as a partner in your care if you are experiencing serious illness or if somebody you love is experiencing serious illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to add on to that a little bit, my impression is that right now, many hospitals have palliative care services available when people are hospitalized, but it's often harder for people to find palliative care in the outpatient setting. Is Would you say that's about right? That is true, but it is also a fast-growing trend. So we are seeing more and more of the palliative care teams, you know, come to the rise. And you can, through that getpalliativecare.org, contact the hospital-based palliative care program, and they will know whether or not there is community-based palliative care available. Mm, That's a great thought. You know, as I'm speaking to you, I'm thinking that some of what you've described to me makes me think of advanced illness management programs. Do you know if those generally offer, you know, what you describe as palliative care services? I know they are meant to be there to support people with serious illnesses, and they often involve uh, a team and sometimes home visits. Right. So advanced illness management is another name for a set of services for people who have, you know, serious illness and they, and it always includes palliative care. So palliative care, again, is the backbone for any advanced illness management. Mm -hmm. So that might be another thing to ask about, um, although they might also find out about that through getpalliativecare.org. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your story and about all these wonderful things that palliative care has done for you. Thank you, too. And I want to especially also thank you for all your work in advocating for better access to palliative care and just raising awareness about it. I think that's really important, and that's going to play a role in making this available to more and more people. So thank you for that. Take care. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the palliative care resources that Amy mentioned in this episode. 
To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and a review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.